Hello, I'm Peter Moore and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colourgraph. qu'il vaudrait mieux ne pas lutter et encaisser tous les coups. Et puis, plus souvent, je suis sûre que je suis protégée miraculeusement, que je l'ai été depuis des années, mais que ce n'est que cette année que j'ai compris d'où me venaient ces bienfaits. Mais aurais-je les années nécessaires pour remercier suffisamment Dieu et la vie You're listening to an extract of a letter written in September 1942 by the wealthy heiress Beatrice de Camondo. Like so many of Jewish heritage in France during the Second World War, Beatrice was trying to chart a path towards survival. I'm sure, she wrote, that I am miraculously protected. Beatrice de Camondot is a central figure in The House of Fragile Things, Jewish Art Collectors and the Fall of France, a new book by today's guest. James McCauley is the Paris correspondent for the Washington Post. His book has been called Fascinating, Sensitive and Heartbreaking by Simon Sebag Montefiore. It's a story that goes searching for lost voices like that of Beatrice by looking at the art they collected and the meaning this art held. I spoke to James just the other day. James, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you today. I have enjoyed this book immensely and it's taught me quite a lot about history I knew in a peripheral sense, but not really head on. The House of Fragile Things is the book I'm talking about. And I thought it'd be nice if you began by just explaining what this book is in your own words and what drove you to write it. Um, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. As you said, The, the House of Fragile Things is um, a book I've just published, and it is essentially a sort of a group biography of prominent French Jewish families before the Second World War and their relationship to art collecting. And the reason that I wrote it is that it strikes me that for a world that more or less disappeared in the Holocaust and after, there are considerable material traces of it that survive. And these are in the form of absolutely exquisite art collections, which still exist today in the form of mostly museums that were left by the families themselves to France before the war. So as a kind of love letter to their adopted home country. As such, you know, the museums are eerie places to visit, if I'm honest, because on the one hand, you know, they are these amazing collections of art and often sort of 18th century ancien regime, decorative arts and paintings, but also they are these testaments to the people who have essentially vanished from the record because of everything that happened during the war, the liquidation of Jewish life in Europe and um, in France as, as, as well. So they're kind of at multiple levels, these museums. Broadly conceived, France, around the time of the Dreyfus Affair and, in the, and during the Holocaust, you know, there, there are any number of studies written about both of those topics. But um, you know, to me, I was always intrigued by what these collections told us and what, what they really mean. And so that, that was the project of the book. And I hope that in doing so, it provides a sense of, 
of just the, the complicated and, and nuanced people that these, these families were, because they were not just sort of wealthy collectors, they were also the stewards of French Jewish life um, at the time. So that, by that, I mean, the leaders of the sort of main communal organizations. They were also sort of figures in French public life. They were in the parliament, they were philanthropists, they were museum governors and, and so on. And I hope that the collections provide a, a, a window into their interiority. Yeah, I think we'll, well, let's start with these collections. You write really nicely that the collections function as self-portraits that afford rich potential for interpreting how a milieu constructed the world, invested it with meaning and infused it with emotion. Do you want to talk maybe about what these collections entailed? Sure. What's what's important is that the the, the majority of the families that I've chosen all of whom, as I, as I mentioned, are you know, kind of political and cultural elites in the fin de siècle and early 20th century, tended to collect the art and, cult, uh, the, the, the art and objet d'art of the, the Ancien Régime. So the period before the French Revolution in the mid to late 18th century, that sort of, um, it's uh, like, a, to give you an example, it's like the Fête Galante. So Boucher, Fragonard, the kind of halcyon days of the court of Versailles before the revolution that sort of destroyed all of that. And it's, it's interesting. So on, um, where to begin? There are several levels here that are, that are worth noting. On the one hand, this was in the late 19th century, just the style that all sort of uh, bourgeois elites were desperate to collect because it was a means of projecting a certain image of prestige because essentially that was the period when art and objects that had previously been the exclusive province of nobility became available on a mass market. And thus like the average, not, not average, but the uh, ordinary bourgeois or financial consumer, financially elite consumer could purchase those objects and thus kind of create a sense of a veneer of sophistication, etc. So it was a means of projection. And, you know, Jewish collectors like non-Jewish collectors in the time were no different in that, in that sense. And that the, the style of the Ancien Regime was popularized in the late 19th century in France by the likes of the Goncourt brothers, Jules Goncourt, who were diarists and art critics and sort of in general self-appointed arbiters of tastes. So it was in a time of industrial transformation when there was a lot of sort of social mobility that did not exist before because of the new industries, banking, finance, railroads, you name it. There, there was a new kind of class of consumer that wanted to, to collect that piece of the cherished and vanished past. And the Jewish collectors were no different. But what's interesting though, is that like with pretty much every period, there was a particular politics associated with the style of the Ancien Regime. And it's worth noting that it was the French Revolution in 1791, 1790, 1791, that emancipated the Jews of France. And this was before any other European state did the same. That's the Clermont-Tonnerre Declaration, the famous line of which is uh, to the Jews as a nation, nothing to the Jews as individuals, everything. And it's interesting then that 
the Jewish elites of the Third Republic, which is the period that I um, am looking at here in the late 19th century and early 20th century, it's interesting that many of them as sort of bourgeois elites collected the style of an era that had been hostile to them and not, so to speak, the arts of the period that had led to their emancipation or even those that followed. Um, and of course, I mentioned you know, that this is a diverse subject and there were others who did, but in the families that I look at and consider in the book, these are essentially the sort of most prominent Jewish families who were sort of so central to cultural life in France at the time. And they were mostly involved in, um, or they, they were mostly engaged in collecting the art of the Ancien Regime. And I was always very intrigued by that. And I think it's, it, it operates at multiple levels. On the one hand, like it is for others, it's a means of projecting a sort of veneer of sophistication. But then on a, on, a, on a more kind of intimate level, I think for many Jews, um, such as the families in the book, they were unbelievably hounded by the anti-Semites of the day, including the Goncourt brothers, for that matter, um, for being somehow aesthetically deficient, kind of ersatz copies of Frenchmen, of kind of mimetic figures in society, you know, inauthentic, not really able to understand the finesse and um, le génie française, to use the kind of French term for the, the, the French cultural genius. And I think for them, it was a, the, the art of the Ancien Regime was a means of assimilation and a means of presenting a, a demonstration that they could, in fact, uh, curate French decorative arts better than the French themselves. And yeah, it's, a, it's a fascinating point because immediately you'd imagine that a collection of art is a projection of power in a way. That's what it would, I suppose, be my first instinctive response to, to learning about one. But here you're showing that in this particular time with a particular group of people, it feels to me like there's an element of um, almost belonging as well, being embraced within part of a culture. Would you say that's fair? I think that's, that's, that's fair. It was always the motivation of these collectors to, to donate their collections to the, to the French state. And what does that tell us? Well, in my mind, it means that they considered themselves to be advancing and in some ways contributing to France's, and, and, and even, we, we might even say, defining France's cultural patrimony. And so I think that's um, to your point about belonging, that's absolutely right. And I think the collections were a means of showing that Jews could in fact curate and um, understand French sort of cultural history. But, but more than that, that Jews belonged in the national narrative with the yeah. French the Roman National. And what's really striking in so many of these cases were that the museums were left to the state as you know, collections that were intact, you know, in honor of the French Ancien Regime, but that bore very recognizable Jewish names at the time. And, and the notion was that the collectors themselves belonged in the historical trajectory that they were presenting to the public and that their families were as rooted in France as anyone else. That's, um, I think, that, I mean, it's really enlightening. But there was another thing I wanted to ask you about, which um, links more closely with the last thing that you were just saying. And this is the rise of this persona of the, and you'll correct my pronunciation because I'm going to say this in a very British English way, but the Israelite, mm -hmm. what that was at that time. And it's probably a word which has gone through many iterations of meaning, but at this particular time in French society, it had a particular charged significance, didn't it? Absolutely. Um, so 
the you know what, what the French call the Israelite at the time is essentially a model, sort of a model Jewish citizen of France, or or I should say a French citizen of Jewish origin, to, to be sort of in line with how the French think of these matters. And where to begin? So it's a it's a post-revolutionary, largely 19th century creation. And here I draw on the the, the excellent work on the topic from one scholar in particular, and that's Maury Samuels at Yale, who's written a lot about this and about the sort of the meaning of the Israelite and, and, and um, its sort of evolution throughout the kind of long 19th century. But to paraphrase, essentially, it's that, you know, French universalism is a very uh, distinct way of thinking about citizenship, right? So in theory, in, in France, after the revolution, it, it's a sort of new social contract in which the individual is supposed to transcend his or her particular affiliations, whether it's religion, like Jewishness or, or Judaism, or um, whether it's, uh, you know, your ethnic origin or whatever, and sort of subsume into the collective of the republic, right, which is this kind of, in, in, in theory, blind, uh, this, this construct that's blind to difference of any kind. Um, obviously, it did not work out that way, but that is the sort of theoretical uh, aspiration. It's a kind of emancipatory promise predicated on assimilation. And some critics would say the effacement of difference, although I would dispute that that was really the intention at the beginning. But, you know, that was the Israeli, somebody who was definitely sort of rooted in Jewish uh, culture and tradition, but also somebody who was first of all, and proudly French um, in their, in their, in at least the way that they presented publicly. Yeah. It's, it's striking and also very sad as well. When you look, um, I mean, this has contemporary relevance. Of course it does. When you look at the lengths that some of the characters you described went to, to join that national story, to become French, to, you know, kind of to, to cross whatever boundary, is there and they might give enormous art collections to the state they might serve in the military but still lingers a suspicion of them being part of some fifth column never properly belonging and i think that's a a theme which goes right throughout your book and you talk about these different individuals many of which are fascinating but we're going to look at one person in particular today and i thought it might be a good time for you to introduce her now absolutely so um the character that I wanted to talk about is called Beatrice de Camondo, who is the daughter of, if you will, the sort of central collector in the book, who is a man called Moïse de Camondo. And as a point of introduction, I might just say that the Camondo are, um, the story of the Camondo is essentially a microcosm of the story of the Jews in modern France. So you have Moïse de Camondeau was born in Constantinople in 18, uh, 1860, I believe. He arrives in France with his father and uncle in 1869. They are a extremely wealthy banking family in from Constantinople at the time, but originally you know, they have, um, it's a Sephardic family with roots across the Mediterranean world. And they continue to work in banking. They're, they're called the Rothschilds of the East. They live in a sort of fabulously opulent manner near the Parc Monceau, which is the sort of area of Paris where many of these sort of Jewish elites lived at the time. And they collected art, and especially Moise and his cousin Isaac de Camondeau, who collected more sort of impressionist and modernist work. Um, but Moise was 
obsessed does not even do it justice, was just sort of like passionately consumed by retracing every little piece he could find of the, of the Ancien Regime. And his whole sort of life's work became creating a sort of recreation of the Petit Trianon, the, um, the, how, the small sort of satellite house of Marie Antoinette at Versailles in his own family mansion. He had a terrible marriage to another, um, to the daughter of another family in the book, um, called Irene Kiendanvers, who herself was the subject of a 1880 Renoir portrait that um, that many uh, of our listeners, I'm sure, have seen. Anyway, she runs off with um, another man after she gives birth to their two children, one of whom is called Missime de Camondo, who eventually dies fighting for France in World War I in 1917 in the Lorraine. He's an air pilot and a reconnaissance pilot, and he's shot down in action. And then they have a daughter, Beatrice de Camondo, who is kind of um, written out of the story in a sense. I mean, she, she doesn't seem to have been the apple of her parents' eye as her brother was. Um, there are suggestions that she was quite deaf, that she wasn't as sort of attractive as some of the other women in her family, especially her mother. And so it was kind of neglected and sort of pushed off to the side. But Beatrice always intrigued me because... Um, she was the only one that was left in the end. And what happened to her is appalling. The war comes and, you know, Beatrice, there are just heartbreaking letters that suggest that, you know, she really believed that nothing bad could happen to her because of all that her family, which yes, was, was, was known to be a Jewish family in the eyes of the authorities, but in her eyes, had done so much for the states that nothing could happen to them. I mean, they had donated um, their father's collection in the museum that still exists today, the Musée Camondeau. And then their brother or her brother had died fighting for France, as did many other Jewish soldiers in the First World War. And it just, it just did not occur to her that all of it was for nothing, in a sense, and that none of it meant anything. And what happened in the end was that she was um, arrested and deported with her, with her children and ex-husband, because she and Leon Reinach had divorced by then. And they were interned in Drancy, the internment camp outside Paris, and then ultimately deported to Auschwitz, where all of them were murdered. The... Camondo story comes to a screeching halt there, and it's all it all just kind of evaporates. But the the collection and the objects survive, even though the people do not. So um, we always say to people who come on this podcast, if you could pick just one year in the past, which year would you like to go back to? I would choose 1942, which was the height of um, the Holocaust in France, and sort of when everything began to go wrong for the Camondo family in general. Okay. I think before we get into the family and her story in particular, let's just talk about 1942 and what it meant for France, what the condition of France was. Because, of course, we know that in June of 1940, I think it was, there was this spectacularly successful invasion from the German point of view, at least. Um, yes. And France just fell totally didn't it very very quickly so as you as you say 1940 was an utter shock france fell uh quickly and totally to the wehrmacht in a matter of days right it happened so quickly that it almost defied comprehension 
And especially after, you know, the, after the period that was called the phony war leading up to that, I don't think that many people really until the last sort of moments before June 1940 really thought that it was uh, going to happen that way, but it did. So you have the uh, German invasion of France, and then you have the division of France into two parts, the, the Nazi occupied zone in the north, although that the map was drawn in a way that sort of let the Nazis keep everything on the Atlantic coast for strategic reasons. And so, um, yeah, just to have the coastline. And then there was the so-called free zone in the south. And that was governed by um, what is called the Vichy government, uh, which was this um, collaborationist, uh, extremely right-wing, reactionary, anti-Republican, anti-revolutionary regime headed by Philippe Pétain, who was a sort of decorated hero from the First World War. And that sort of independent of Nazi prodding passed any, um, several devastating uh, pieces of anti-Semitic legislation of its own, such as the, the Statut des Juifs, as we, as we call that in French, basically requiring that Jews register with authorities and banning them from the liberal professions. Uh, the list goes on and on. So um, could I just say, if you're Jewish, what do you do? Is it better to stay in, in the occupied North or should you go to the, the free French quarter? What, what, is this a kind of dilemma that many people had? I think very much. I think it's a um, it's a complicated question that depended on who you were and what your station was. Um, many uh, so you know it's it's worth pointing out that sort of before the the German invasion, France um, sort of in the period between the wars had become a destination for refugees itself, uh, refugees from Eastern Europe, from Nazi occupied Europe, from Nazi Germany, uh, etc. And these were not just Jews, but many sort of Eastern European Jews were, were, were in France at the time of the invasion. And so for them, they just left, or if they could, and not everyone could, but many essentially found their way out of Europe. But again, because of the, the sensibility of what we were talking about earlier, the, the, the so-called Israelite, this deep um, uh, embrace of the French Republic and its ideals, there was a certain... Um, Kind of reluctance, almost. Well, reluctance. I mean, it, it would be it would be too much, or, or or even cruel to call it delusional. But it, it, there was a sort of inability to conceive of the fact that the entire edifice was crumbling to the ground. Well, let's go a couple of years down the line to 1942. Where would you like to go for your first of your three scenes, please? Um, so maybe. Uh, perhaps we could start with um, the Valdiv roundup in July 1942. I think a good thing would be if you explained exactly what this was and if it was a moment of great significance. Okay, so the Valdiv roundup occurred in um, July 1942. It is the night of July 16th, to be precise, and it is the largest roundup of of Jews in Paris by French authorities, French uh, police and gendarmes. And it's, and it's very important, the role of the French uh, authorities in this, um, in this sort of nightmarish event. So is uh, this a kind of, this is a collaborative effort between the, you know, kind of the occupying forces and the French uh, military or police services? 
Exactly, but with a heavy, heavy role played by the French. Okay. It's the most, it's, it's the largest and most traumatic assault on, on Jews in the French capital during the Second World War. And it's sort of the moment at which everything changes, although things obviously were terrible before. But it, it's um, somewhere along the lines of 13,000 Jews and 4,000 of them children are arrested in their homes in the middle of the night in that sort of horribly cinematic kind of pound on the door, dogs barking way, and taken to um, what was then called the Velodrome d'Hiver, which, uh, which was a stadium very near the Eiffel Tower where it is today. Um, it's, no, it, it's been raised long ago, but they were, they were taken there. And the following day, they were taken to um, uh, internment camps, mostly Drancy outside Paris, which is on the way to the airport. If you've taken the RERB train from the city to Charles de Gaulle, you'll pass through Drancy. Most of them there, but then others elsewhere in France. And then many of them deported to Auschwitz, where the vast majority of them were murdered and never came back. And this was an event that really, I think, for many people in the sort of uh, more elite factions of society, such as the, the kind of Camondo, Reinach, Cayendon, Verset, uh, made clear where things were going and what was happening because um, it, it made clear that no one was spared. It doesn't seem to have, um, regardless of that and, and, and the sort of obvious stakes, it doesn't seem to have shaken the confidence of, of Beatrice de Camondeau, who continued living in Paris and who did not uh, make any effort to leave France um, despite the trauma of what had just happened. I say, just say at this point, there's there's such a sinister familiarity. As you said, it's almost cinematic because we've seen it in the cinema so many times. The knocks on the doors, you know, yeah. kind of the you know the the feet on the stairs, the people being dragged away from their old lives into their new lives. It's is was there any sense that something like this was about to happen, or did it take everyone by surprise? Did they feel that because France was maybe a Western nation, things were going to be different? In terms of the roundups, there, this, the, the Valdive was not the first of the roundups um, in Paris or elsewhere. So it, it didn't necessarily come out of the blue. It's just that it was the largest and sort of a point of no return, if you will. Hmm. Basically, not all the previous roundups had, had uh, resulted in deportations to the same extent, but this one was inex was was absolutely inextricably linked to the final solution. You know, the the the, the plan from the Nazis to exterminate Jew Europe's entire Jewish population. And this must have just been a terrifying time to be Jewish in Paris, because isn't it absolutely. just a couple of months after people or Jewish people have been required to wear the yellow star in public for the first time. So uh, absolutely. I mean, although, you know, it's worth it's worth noting that, um, I mean, things were sort of over from the beginning. I mean, there were there were all of those sort of signs. I mean, we've all seen the pictures on black and white now faded photographs that show parks in Paris that said closed to dogs and and um, and Jews. And, you know, I mean, that was everywhere. And the sort of normalization of Nazi anti-Semitism in the capital was, was sort of old news by the summer of 1942. But I think um, some people, some sort of more well-connected types like, uh, like Beatrice de Camondeau, I think perhaps thought that she could just sort of get by um, as others did. Is there maybe a distinction, I don't know, when lists were compiled, was there a distinction between 
perhaps what you might call the old Jewish families of Paris and the recent arrivals from places like Germany, Czechoslovakia and Poland. Is there... uh, this is a huge point of discussion and contention <laughs> scholarship. And you know, one of the biggest books that's written in France or that, that's come out in France on this topic in recent years is called Survival, How 75% of French Jews Survived the War. And it's written by a French historian called Jacques Semelin. And you know, statistically that is true. Um, the distinction was sort of constantly being uh, revised and, and walked back on and reconsidered, but there was this sort of uncertainty about the difference between French Jews, like the sort of the Israelite families and uh, sort of immigrant Jews who were not French nationals. But honestly, from my perspective, I'm not sure what the difference really means because a human life is a human life. And at the end of the day, what, what does the passport tell us, you know? Survival could also be, it, it could also be a form of victimhood, you know, and, and, and of course it could, right? I mean, had, had, as you said, been dragged from your old life to a new life, having lost um, your sense of self and society, your, your sense of place, having been subjected to the most sort of abject humiliation. For those that did survive, um, there was a real rupture with France and especially with the sort of the values of the French Republic that turned out to be worthless um, for so many of these people that had devoted their lives to maintaining them, which is why to this day, so many of the descendants that I interviewed for the book do not live in France. They live in New York, they live in Montreal, they live in London, they live in Israel. Um, yes, uh, some do live in France, but many of the others do not. It was the sort of point of no return. We should go and see Beatrice, I think, at this point, who's living nearby. Where would you like to go for your second scene? So to get back into the notion of, of, um, of what someone like her was thinking, maybe we could go to September of 1942, uh, three months after the Valdiv roundup. And at that point... Um, this was one of the sort of most illuminating discoveries that I had in my research because so in the Camondo archive, which is on the top floor of the museum, there is a very, very good uh, collection of letters and diaries, et cetera, largely from uh, Moise de Camondo, the sort of patriarch of the, the, the family and the house and his collection and so on and so forth. But there's very little on Beatrice. Um, a few photo albums here, but not much in the, in, the, in the lines of correspondence or anything that really gives her voice. Again, she's kind of a supporting character in this drama that, that essentially ended her life. And I really, really struggled to find anything about her. But one day I made the acquaintance of a sort of old man who lives to this day in Neuilly, which is right outside Paris, and whose mother had been a friend of Beatrice de Camondo in childhood. They had uh, adjacent estates in the countryside. I was able to make his acquaintance and I went to his apartment uh, one day and had a coffee with him. And in his living room where we were sitting, he opened up his slant top desk and pulled out these two unbelievable letters that Beatrice had written his mother and that he had kept for all these years. And one of them was written in 1917 after her brother Nisim was killed sort of thanking her friend for her condolences and um, you know, connecting on that level. But the other, I just, I almost fell off my chair. It was written on September 5th, 1942, three days exactly to the date of Beatrice's arrest. 
it is written from uh, the, the forest of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, which is a sort of wealthy suburb outside of Paris, which also tells you that Beatrice was not sort of living um, necessarily in a confined, secretive manner. You know, she was traveling between her apartment on the outskirts of Paris and um, Saint-Germain. Anyway, so this letter, it was on this um, very well-preserved uh, one leaf of paper written on both sides. And it essentially tells us what she was thinking at that very fraught moment. And it turns out she was not thinking much as you would have expected about the occupation. She was thinking about her conversion. And that was a sort of um, amazing moment in the research because of course I knew that Beatrice de Camondo had converted, uh, had converted to Catholicism. Many other Jews had done the same as a kind of insurance policy um, that did not always work. And so I didn't think much of it. You know, I didn't think that it, it could be genuine, but reading the letter, it absolutely was. There's no way to read the letter and see any other way. She writes that I am sure, and she underlines the word sure, that I am miraculously protected. She says that you know, she believes that God and the Virgin will save her still. She reports that I've sensed it for years, but only in this last year have I understood from where all this good fortune has come to me. Will I have the years necessary to thank God and the Virgin enough for their protection? I am so little and so low, so unworthy. She really seemed to be a genuine convert to believe in the salvation she would get from the divine. And that I just, I couldn't believe. Do you think, and I'm not to suggest things beyond my um, pay grade. So I'm, I'm wondering whether, because France is a deeply Catholic country, isn't it? And it, and it always has been for, for a thousand years or more. Could there be some dovetailing there of her French, as you were saying before, because this this desire to be French, to, you know, kind of write yourself into the national story, maybe becoming a Catholic in a way has some, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I thought about that, too. I think that may be right. I think that um, it's, you know, it's um, it could just be a means of uh, assimilation, although you know she had married another Jew and had raised Jewish children. And so, um, you know, that, that I'm not so sure about, but I think that maybe, maybe, mm. right, maybe it was tied up with sort of the notion of France as she understood it. And it, it, it's the only thing that still belongs to her and um, that, that, that couldn't be taken from her by, by the Nazis, by the Holocaust, by her times, by just the sort of devastating weight of history. You know, it's easy in hindsight in 2021 to look back at someone like her and judge, to say, you know, what on earth were you thinking? Why did you not read the writing on the wall? Why did you not leave when you had a chance? You had two beautiful children. How could you do this? And you had means that very few other people had. It's, it's very difficult to sort of avoid doing that at first. But then I just came to see that that's not at all the point. You know, the point is these were people and she's not the only one, although she is sort of the most um, illustrative example in the book. That there was this sort of milieu that really, no matter what happened to them, remained true to the values they had held throughout their lives. And these values we may see as, as illusions, but they were real enough to sustain these people in their times. And mm -hmm. it wasn't false because, you know, for a while they lived and understood the world as it 
as it was and it changed, but for, for a while that, that is how the world was, that is how they understood it. If they didn't understand their times or how they changed, I mean, I'm sorry, but do we understand ours? I don't think so. And um, it, it, it just, um, you know, it strikes me that the collections, which are the kind of material manifestation of that worldview are doubly haunting because of that. I mean, they really are a testament to um, a reading of history that did not turn out to be accurate, but that is also not false, if that makes sense. It's a sort of permutation of the way things were and might have been. And um, in a sense, you know, the, the book is called The House of Fragile Things, but um, the houses have, have survived and the sort of collective edifice that these characters built together the sort of the, the embrace of the Israelite for France was not for nothing. You know, it, it, it survives even if the, the custodians of it do not. And um, it proved more durable than, than we might have expected. And that is what I sort of hope to say with this book. Hello, it's Peter here. We always do our best to evoke the past as vividly as we can on Travels Through Time, and James McCauley is doing a fine job of that today. But if you'd like a visual representation of the early 20th century world we're talking about, then we have something else for you too. Jordan Lloyd has colourised a formal portrait of Nassim de Camondo, that's Beatrice's brother, and you can see him in it sitting proudly in his airman's uniform shortly before his death in combat in 1917. There's a real immediacy to the portrait, shorn of its period hues, and filled with colour, it feels very much like a little act of resurrection. You can see this portrait on our website, of course, and at colorgraph.co, you can explore many, many more captivating historical portraits as well. For example, you can see Abraham Lincoln in 1865, Queen Victoria in 1857, Theodore Roosevelt in 1916, Charles Darwin with his magical father Christmas beard, in 1874, and so many more. All of these are available to purchase as prints in the range of sizes. Printed on museum-grade paper in the south of England, the quality is superb too. They make excellent presents. Travels Through Time listeners can get 10% extra off at the checkout too. Just enter the code TTT. That's beautifully put, but I think we should follow um Beatrice's story forward where shall we go for your third and final scene then please so the final scene um would be December so three months to the day after she wrote the letter that I found in Neuilly and this is um in Neuilly in her apartment at 64 Boulevard Maurice Barres in the Bois de Boulogne this is um it looks out directly on that it's right there as you walk into the park and it's a beautiful apartment, a kind of art deco building that looks out onto this gorgeous, yeah, sort of um, green oasis in the middle of the French capital, which is not known for um, having too many green spaces. Um, so Beatrice lived there with her husband, Leon Reinach, the kind of amateur composer. It was there that she was arrested with her daughter, Fanny, um, in December, 1942, three, three months to the day after she wrote the letter um, telling her friend that God and the Virgin would save her still. And they were taken to the Commissariat de Police in the 16th arrondissement that night. And then um, 
the next day were taken to Drancy outside Paris. And Drancy was a world of its own. So this was in the 1930s, a public housing project that had been appropriated by first the, the French and then the Germans for um, an internment camp. And it, it became a sort of um, truly hellish environment. I mean, just like absolute squalor, absolute brutality. And it's where uh, Beatrice and her world were sort of reconstituted and for briefly before they were sent to Auschwitz. And what's really uh, quite something is that so many of the people from her family and her family by marriage and her sort of other relations uh, met again in Drancy briefly um, before being deported to Auschwitz. And, and I, I'm going to quote one passage, which is from the memoirs of um, Dota Conrad, who was a Polish-born opera singer who was um, interned in Drancy along with, Beat with Beatrice. Like others, you know, Dota Conrad knew of the Camondo collection. I mean, these were sort of celebrities in a sense. He has this sort of just amazing passage about Beatrice that uh, goes as follows. So this is his words. The uselessness of hanging on to objects. Madame de Camondo not long ago had the support of 14 maids. She was 48 years old, but here she did chores. She would go to the peeling station where for three or four hours, she would peel vegetables for the soup of thousands of poor people. She would sweep and wash the floor, make her bed, clean the casseroles and the dishes after the meals, anything and everything. And what's, what's really interesting is that Beatrice lasted an unbelievably long time in the squalor of the Drancy camp. From December, 1942, when we are talking now, all the way to March 1944, when she was deported to, draw, to Auschwitz. So that's 15 months, almost exactly to the day. And you know how she survived that long remains entirely unclear, but I, I really think that it's the strength of her faith that seems to have played some role in sustaining her. Well, it's the absolutely testament to the strength of her character, for sure, because yeah. I mean, someone who's taken out of such gilded surrounds, who has been waited on by so many different pairs of hands over the years, they could have crumbled in a week or two, you know, so that she manages to reinvent herself in this new role is uh, is really interesting, I think. I suppose we, we talked a little bit um, with another of our guests, Ariana Newman, about Terenzin, which is a camp just outside of Prague. And it reminds me a little bit of that, um relationship that the family members would have you know kind of they'd be quite close but very far away and kept in this uh, you know suspended st state where they didn't know what was going to happen or when they were going to be sent to the east and um and some people actually had quite i suppose quite successful little lives in these places they thrived in a way and um it sounds that maybe we can number her among those kind of people. Yeah, and what's interesting as well is that, um, you know, so part of the sort of sort of abject brutality of the Nazi apparatus was, um, as elsewhere, to sort of involve Jews in the policing of their fellow prisoners, you know. So there was, there was a, in Drancy as elsewhere, there was a sort of Jewish hierarchy charged with um, uh, sort of the running of the camp. Um, although it had no final authority, obviously, but in just in terms of sort of organizing different aspects of daily life there. And Beatrice, like from the beginning, was part of that, that, that hierarchy. She was in the sort of infant nursery of the camp. That was her sort of official role. 
And I have um, a sort of flow chart from the archives of the Memorial de la Shoah in Paris that sort of have her name uh, listed among others. And that's interesting because that meant that she had uh, slightly more protection than others did because the way it worked was when you arrived at Drancy, you got a sort of entry card with any number, with you know, one of several letters on it. C uh, was the sort of coveted administrative class, which is what Beatrice and her family were. And B was um, a sort of stateless uh, person who could be deported with no problem. And then A was for Aryans or um, spouses of Jews or half Jews, that sort of thing. But they were, the Camondos were C at the beginning. And then ultimately, as, as happened to everyone, transferred to category B and then deported. And you know, what, what happened, we don't really know, but I mean, it's, 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 it's certain that Beatrice's ex-husband, Leon Reinach, who she had divorced in October, 1942, despite everything, largely because he had been having affairs and she seems to have been able to stand it no more. It's clear that Leon and their son, Bertrand, had been involved in this, this effort to build a tunnel out of the camp. And it truly is one of the most sort of haunting and scary episodes in the history of Drancy because it's this kind of clandestine underground effort to dig with force, with brute force and just, you know, no tools whatsoever, a hole that Jews, Jewish prisoners could escape out of the camp through. So they actually got pretty far, but ultimately uh, one night were discovered when the Nazi guards were doing the rounds and saw a sort of um, discarded jacket on the ground. And then that led them to sort of investigate a little bit further. And then they found uh, one guy and then they tortured him for several days. And then he gave the names of the sort of the other like 30 people or however many there were involved. And the Bertrand and Leon Reinach were among them. They and then their daughter Fanny were all deported in November 1943 to Auschwitz with everyone else in the in the tunnel project. And Beatrice was kept in Drancy until March 1944. So, I mean, it's really just awful to imagine. I mean, the the, the word that children in the camp called what was to come next. You know, they didn't really. I don't think they they knew exactly what Auschwitz was, but they knew that people who went there did not come back. They called it Pichipoi. And it was this kind of made up um, sort of hell place that um, was the stuff of kind of wild speculation in the camp, but the, the, the meaning of it was clear in the, in the sort of most global sense. She would have known that once they left, um, they wouldn't be coming back and that she might never see them again. But again, she was there for several more months after. But it's, I mean, there's a few things that just strike me, I should say, probably in conclusion to this is that how in her last few months of freedom towards the end of 1942 she goes to these very striking lengths to you know remake her identity by divorcing her husband and um changing her religion which is i don't know just as you say it's one of those ponderables that you're left with um yeah. but then there's this but i just think it's so fascinating to think of her working in the infant nursery while at the same time, somewhere across Europe, the 1880 portrait of her mother by Renoir is hanging on the wall of some senior Nazi. Could you just tell us a tiny bit about that, which of course takes us back to the collections that we began with? Yes, um, so 
this comes from, uh, let's see, Beatrice's mother's family, who were called the Cayenne d'Anvers, the family that co-founded the bank that is today Paribas. It's the sort of usual story of, you know, patronage in Paris. So the, the banker, Louis Cayenne d'Anvers, at the behest of his wife, uh, Louise Cayenne d'Anvers, who was one of the great sort of salonnières of the day, commissioned Renoir to, to do a painting of each of their daughters. Um, so they did one of Irene Candonvert, which is the kind of gorgeous profile picture of, of their daughter Irene that again appears in the um, Breathless by Godard later. I mean, it's, it's a kind of cultural artifact. Like, you have definitely seen this painting, even if you don't realize it. And then he did another one of their other two daughters, Alice and Elizabeth Candonvert. And of course, Elizabeth Candonvert is killed in Auschwitz as well and is in Drancy at the time of Beatrice. So what had happened with the painting, so Renoir was an anti-Semite, a staunch anti-Dreyfusard, hated Jews and the Candonvert, but also was dependent on them for his commissions. And he had never been paid more for a single portrait than I believe he was for the portrait of Irene's sisters. But anyway, these are, all, these are nevertheless some of the, the great masterpieces in his of, if, if I may, at least in my assessment. The Candonvert, however, hated the painting. And so they never displayed it prominently. It ends up as a gift to Beatrice de Camondo from her grandmother, Louise Candonvert, after Irene has left the family and left Beatrice and her brother behind. So it's a kind of treasured item that seems to remind her of her own absent mother and she always kept it and it was in the house that she shared with Leon Reinach in uh, the Boulevard Maurice Barres before the war. But then what happens next is that Leon takes the painting along with several other of their prized pieces of art as did many other uh, families not just Jews but others as well in the run-up to the Nazi occupation just for safekeeping to the um, the, the Louvre Museum, which then takes a bunch of, of, of all of that, including some of the museum's own collections to the Chateau Chambord in the Loire Valley. And it's there that the, the so-called ERR task force, the sort of Nazi looting squad in France, uh, gets its hands on this Renoir. And briefly, it passes in the hands of Hermann Goering, um, but ultimately he trades it for something else. We believe a Florentine Tondo, although exactly what is somewhat murky. It passes through his hands, but then um, after the war, after Beatrice is murdered, it ends back up in the show of recovered art in the Tuileries at, um, in 1946. And the, the idea was to sort of display publicly some of the, the looted works from Jewish collections in the hopes that some of their descendants might be able to reclaim them. And this one was, and it was reclaimed by Irene Candonvert herself, who had hid in Paris throughout the war, managed to survive, even though her daughter Beatrice was murdered and were her grandchildren. And she got it back. Um, and the first thing she does is sell it again. And what she does and, and who she sells it to or whom she sells it to is sort of a devastating coda to the story. And essentially she, through a, a, a dealer in Paris, she sold it to um, Emile Burla, who was a, a Nazi collaborator and sort of war material provider, naturalized Swiss, who had you know, dealt with, who had provided the Axis powers with, with war material throughout the war. Although he would say had also supplied the allies and necessity forced him to do that. But however, I mean, he was certainly enriched by his dealings with the Nazis. 
and also was extremely shady in terms of his purchases during the war and ended up with tons of looted stuff on the black market, you know, from the Rosenberg collection that he eventually had to give back. I mean, just everything like that. He then was sold the Renoir legally by the namesake of the portrait. And so what you have today is the painting of um, Irene Candover, which was Beatrice de Camondo's prized possession, hanging legally in the collection of a Nazi collaborator. And it's just, it's sort of devastating to think of it that way because it, it really was something that she, it was, an, it was one of the few objects that we know that still exist that belonged to her and that she saw some meaning in and that she loved and that today, will just, I mean, there, there, there's no legal claim to be made on it. It will be there forever. Because it went, yeah, legitimately sold, I suppose. Yes. That's the that's the point. Yeah. Goodness me, well, that painting in itself could have a book to its name. But, you know, bring coming back to yours, which is um, sitting right in front of me now, I think it's, you know, it's a book which does take a fresh view because you find in these collections so many stories embedded and it's not just as you explained about that one painting there's so many different ones as well um i've got one last question to you before we finish if you could bring one tangible object back from the year 1942 to today to have what would you like so i think of all the things we might that that, that might be able to be chosen i would i would choose to to somehow um, restore and save um, the library of, um, of journals and archives that Theodore Reinach kept at the Villa Carilos in the south of France that were ransacked and destroyed by the Gestapo roughly at that, at that time. I mean, this was totally destroyed. Yes, uh, it was, um, I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure. I think some of it might've just been stolen and sold or whatever, but um, a lot of it was destroyed. And this was an amazing archive in Carilos, the house that he built, um, and that also survives today and it also is a museum that's absolutely worth visiting. But there was an archive there and it really would have, it, it tells us a lot about this sort of, this world and this family and this sort of mindset and um, it's all gone. Oh goodness, well that it would keep you going for quite some time I imagine by the sounds of things. It sounds very like kind of rich and varied. Yes. But, um, Thank you very much. This has been really, really instructive, making me think about all sorts of things that I hadn't considered. And of course, some things that you think about every day, which is, you know, how does fascism take hold in any country and how would you act in in these kind of circumstances? And um, there's a lot of that to ponder reading through your book. Thank you very, very much, James McCauley. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. That was me, Peter Moore, talking to James McCauley about his new book, The House of Fragile Things, which has recently been published by Yale University Press. For much more, including that fascinating colourised photograph of Beatrice's brother by Jordan Lloyd, do head to our website at tttpodcast.com. There you'll be able to find other similar stories. For example, Ariana Newman's account of her Jewish father's astonishing escape in 1944 and the Wolfson Prize winning academic Mary Fulbrook, who looks at how successive generations have attempted to come to terms with the Holocaust. Next week's episode will be with Violet Moller. She's going to be talking about 15th century Florence with Ross King. But from me for now, that's it. Thank you very much for listening.